Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope you're all staying inside. We've got an exciting pandemic going on. It's actually not exciting, but we're all home now. So (laughs) I hope you are close to your computer and listening in. Today we have a thriller author, Humphrey Hawksley is here, and he is a blast. Let me tell you, we were chatting before the show. Anyway... If you have not read Humphrey's new book yet, it made the New York Post list for required reading this week. So what are you waiting for? I can't wait for you to talk to him. So if you haven't met yet, I'll read his bio really quick, and then we'll be off and running. Humphrey Hoxley's brand-new international thriller series begins in paperback in October 2019 with Man on Ice, a knuckle-whitening drama set in the remote and wild U.S.-Russian border. In early 2020 comes the nail-biting Man on Edge, that's what we're going to be talking about today, set on the Norway-Russia border, followed in 2021 by Man on Fire, whose location is yet to be disclosed. Maybe we can pull that out of him today. Um, <laughs> uh, he, Humphrey's thrillers have been widely praised. Steve Barry describes authentic settings and nonstop action from Man on Ice, and Lee Child speaks of security breach as high stakes and high octane. Humphrey's work as a BBC foreign correspondent has taken him all over the world. He's contributed to ABC, National Public Radio, and other networks in the United States, and global publication of his works include the Financial Times, the New York Times, Yale Global, and others. I did put a link to Humphrey's website right there on the Blog Talk site. So if you're listening live, go ahead and click that anytime. You can see all the book covers and see what he's been up to. And without any further delay, Humphrey, are you there? Uh, Lisa, I am. Thank you for that introduction. Oh, it's so great to have you here. I didn't get a chance to ask you before we started, but where are you right now? Are you somewhere cold or is it warming up? Well, it's meant to be cold. I'm in in London, but we've got global warming, so it's sort of spring shirt sleeve weather. And the streets are relatively empty because of this uh, virus thing, but people are sort of going about their daily work as much as they can. Right. Yeah, we're feeling the same thing here. I'm in San Diego. It's a little bit rainy today, but it's a little eerie how quiet it is outside because they're telling us (laughs) all to stay inside, so... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know whether that's Your any good thing. Your thrillers are coming to life. <laughs> right? Absolutely. All, Although I'm all not my, sure I'd like to do one about a pandemic. I Yeah, a little scary. All my writer friends are yeah. telling me we've all been tra- practicing for this day. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, in, in the writing trade, if, if anybody started writing a pandemic thriller now based on what's happening, by the time it hits the shelves, it will probably be over and everybody would have be, had enough coverage of it and they'd be wanting something new. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now it needs to be a, pan, a zombie pandemic or something. <laughs> yeah, so a werewolf pandemic. There. There we go. There's my next series. Thank you. <laughs> So what can you tell us about Man on Edge? Why should people go get it this week while they're cooped up at home? 
Well, Man on Edge is set, as I think you mentioned, on the Norway, um, Norway-Russia border. And it, and it follows on from Man on Ice, which was set on the U.S.-Russian uh, border after I did a trip there in 2015 to look and see what this border was actually like. And those two places are on both edges of the Arctic. So as we talk about uh, the, 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 the Arctic ice melting, and there's stuff almost every day in the press now about the new sea routes opening up or Russia making a claim to the Arctic or something happening there, um, this is becoming a, a more and more strategically interesting part of the world. And as somebody, as I was doing the research on both these books, said to me, he said, like the Middle East became in the 1920s with the discovery of oil, the Arctic is going to become like that as this century unfolds, mainly because there are shorter shipping routes that are going through there and also because ah. there, are, there is fossil fuels and, 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 and energy resources in the Arctic there as well. So there's a scramble going on there. And the two thrillers that I've done are set at both of the mouths of the Arctic, as it were. The one on the US-Russian uh, border goes through a very narrow strait into the Pacific Ocean, and then the one on the other goes into the North Atlantic. Uh, and the hero of that, uh, uh, Ray Kuzena, he comes from the island of Little Diomede, which is on the US-Russian uh, border. Uh, where there are two islands, there's Big Diomede and Little Diomede, and they are barely two miles apart. And Little Diomede is a is a, a native Alaskan village of about 80 to 100 people. That's where Reykjavik comes from. And then two miles across a narrow stretch of water to that is a Russian military base. And that's where the two superpowers meet. Uh, and I was astounded when I went there because we don't hear much about this border. Uh, we hear a lot about the tension in Europe, but we don't hear a lot about that border. And they, I, I sort of drew my my hero from that community, not based on one particular person, but the sort of amalgamation of, uh, you know, ingenuity, working with the elements, the sort of wild DNA of hunting and survival, plus a sort of uh, street smart situational awareness of how to sort of deal with difficult situations. And did you actually go to that town? That's amazing. I did. <laughs> I did. Wow. It wow. Was, it was, you, you go to Anchorage, and then from Anchorage you fly to Nome, which is an old gold rush town on the, uh, on the west coast there. And then you have to wait until the helicopter can fly because of fog and weather conditions and go out to the wow. island, which is not, there's no cars, there's no store. There's one tiny little sort of like a corner store type of thing there. Uh, there's no roads. Uh, there's nothing there apart from a cluster of, of sort of buildings or, 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 or shelters in a way that sort of climb up this granite hillside. And it's a very old community, and those communities all around there, um, you know, have been there for centuries. Um, I was meant to be there. I budgeted for 36 hours. I thought that would be enough to get a feel of the place. I was actually doing a report for the BBC at the time because Ukraine and Crimea, if we remember that, that had all sort of sparked up. And I wanted to see where the two superpowers met. 
uh, and I was meant to be there for a day and a bit, and helicopter didn't come back for more than a week. <laughs> oh my gosh! Sort of stuff like that. <laughs> it's just okay. you know, they just it off. And I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm guessing there's no hotel there either. Where did you stay for a week? On the floor of the school. Uh, so <laughs> wow, uh, <laughs> you, you sort of slept in a on a sleeping bag on the floor of the, the I think it was the headmistress's study or something in the school. Luckily, I, I didn't know it, but luckily it was um, it was the holiday time, <laughs> but, uh, and oh then uh, <laughs> and then we ran out of food. They told us to bring our own food, uh, but I thought well, it's got to be a shop. But the shop only sold like. Um, you know, processed cheese and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there was nothing mm-hmm. substantial. <laughs> it was just a wild, but great people. I mean, you know, great people. <laughs> oh my and gosh! So, wow. So that's that's the hero of this Rakersena series comes from there. So when I signed the the, the second, the first book was a success, and so I signed to do a second book, and I thought, well, I should take him somewhere somewhere else because mainly because you know getting back there and everything was big so I thought well why don't we do Norway Russia um mainly because it's the same geopolitical backdrop um you know a rising Russia and the U.S. and autocracy and democracy but also there's putting the the, the hero uh who's grown up with this sort of uh, you know environmental DNA where he can he can sort of see the way a bird flies better than you can tell the weather on a, on a satellite thing or something. He's got that sort of instinct, uh, put him mm-hmm. in a similar place. And up in, uh, I went up to the far North of Norway for this, uh, a one horse town that's right on the border called Kirkenes, similar sort of trip. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the ice and the snow and the wild people there, and the dog sledding along the Russian border, uh, which I did because I wanted to put a dog sled chase in it. And the way the wow, the way they they work with the Russians, you know. <laughs> so so the, and so much you learn when you research this stuff. And and Rake, who's the, the 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 hero, and is quite a sort of ruthless character, but on the right side of things, he's um. He's got a, a, a on-off girlfriend who's a trauma surgeon from Brooklyn, um, and they have one of these interesting relationships, which I think many of us are aware of, is that everything's fine as long as there's a lot to do and there's a bit of tension and risk and action going on. But when you actually settle down for that candlelit dinner that you've always thought about and there's no threat and anything, you don't really have much to say to each other. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, so they really like each other and incredibly attracted to each other. But could they ever do the mom pop white picket fence thing? That's the sort of overarching <laughs> question that, that was asked throughout the book. <laughs> wow. And how in the world did they meet when he's from a small town and she's from Brooklyn? Ah. Yes. Well, you, you you know, I think all over the place when you have these when you have a remote community, uh, remote native community, there are uh, with poverty, so nobody's got any money. Uh, there's only a few ways right. out, and uh, either you you end up in sort of in this sort of world of domestic violence and drunken drugs, or you join the military. 
So Reg ah. joined the military and he made it through to officer. He bust through from sort of private to officer class. Uh, and then, of course, got deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. And he met Carrie Walker, the trauma surgeon in Iraq, because they were both working there. Ah, gotcha. And she was fixing people from a, from a car bomb. And he happened to be the guy that was there uh, fixing it at the time. And they, you know, they became attracted to each other as these things happen. And then he was at the beginning of Man on Ice, the one before Man on Edge, he was taking her back to his hometown uh, or the home village I just described to you um, just to sort of introduce him, her to his folks um, when, um, when the story blows open. Um, and uh, and they're, they're sort of nonstop for the next two or three days. Um, because uh, what happens in that one is that um, <clears throat> the Russians, who are only two miles away in their military base, they come into this unprotected American island on the eve of a presidential transition. So it's sort of around January the 18th when you have two administrations changing power. And America is actually, in a way, at, at its most vulnerable then because nobody you know, you're actually having a whole change of government and people and all that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so the Ru- Russians decide to hit then. <laughs> so that the, the oh. book unfolds in that sort of 48, 72, 72 hours, basically, um, uh, to to stop, stop all hell breaking loose. <laughs> so I have to ask, because I'm a writer and I love going on book research trips, and it always makes the books so much better because there's so much you can't learn on Google, which is hard to believe, but true. Um, and so when you go there, you're like, oh, my gosh, this could happen or this or whatever. Did you already have the idea for the book before you went to the teeny tiny town, or did you get there and you thought, oh, my gosh, this is what's going to happen? I went, um, it was sort of a, a mix. I had been, I did some thrillers of the same sort about 10 years earlier. And then because of the Iraq and Iran and Arabs, all of that stuff happened. I sort of veered back to journalism because there was so much going on. And then I thought, well, mm-hmm. no, I really must start doing another thriller. But at the time I was actually there to do a story about this border when the Ukraine crisis happened. Uh, I was sort of thinking, okay, so we've got uh, yet another crisis on Europe's border with Russia, which we've had throughout the Cold War. And, you know, it's always Europe, 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 isn't it? And the U.S. is there. But is there a place where these two superpowers meet? And I sort of discovered this, these two islands. I mean, people knew about it, but when I went in, before talking to intelligence people and colleagues in Washington on my way there, there wasn't a great awareness about it. And if you remember back in 2008, when Sarah Palin was running for the vice presidency, yes. uh, she was the governor of Alaska. And she was ridiculed, completely ridiculed. Right. For that. But actually she was right. Because you get up every morning in this place and you look out and you see a Russian military camp. And I think she said Alaskans can see Russia from their backyards, I think is what she said. And I listened to that interview and I thought, oh, um, she's actually right. (laughs) uh, You know, she didn't explain it it very well. (laughs) You can see it. 
And but it's an incredible border because because there's nothing there. There's no flags. There's no markers. There's no boys. There's no customs posts. There's nothing to say that one island is Russia and one island is America. Um, and uh, and so when I went there to report that, so I did some stuff for the BBC, um, and uh, which is on my website. I think that's still all around that stuff. But I thought, well, it's too good to miss an opportunity to actually do a thriller here. Uh, and then I checked back, and there was only one thriller that had actually been written across that border, which was Kalinsky Heights by Lionel Davidson. Came out in, I think, came out in 1996 or 1997. And it wasn't really about the border. He just escaped. The guy escaped across the border at the end. I said, well, nobody's ever done this before. Um, so I thought, well, I'd better do it. And then because it kind of worked, then I was, I stuck the wrong word, but I have my hero now that comes from this place. <laughs> so, we, so as, right, as he right. develops. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so all this time that you're working with the BBC, when did you decide you wanted to be a thriller writer? Do you love reading them? What what made you decide to take a turn in your path and write some thrillers? It was, um, uh, I think every journalist or foreign correspondent sort of wants to get a book under their belt. And it was actually back in, in the mid-90s when I was the Beijing bureau chief for the BBC in China. Uh, and I sort of found an agent and I wrote these these proposals to do where's China going and all this kind of stuff uh, which were must have been really really boring and the um the agent said <laughs> and I said look I wanted you to come and meet this 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 publisher he, he, I think you two might be able to work together so I went in and he had this sort of chapter proposal I'd done on China's economy and its, its farming and its state-run industries and all this stuff that would send anybody to sleep in half a second. And he looked at, <laughs> looked at it sort of cursorily and he sort of drops it into the bin. And I sort of looked around. I said, what am I doing here? And he said, now tell me, do you think you could write a thriller about America going to war with China? And being a sort of hack, as we call it, you know, a journalist. I said, yes, of course I could. <laughs> he said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a book sure. with a colleague, actually. I did a book called um, Dragonstrike, which was a simulated, uh, it, was, it was a sort of fictional, factional book about looking at what would happen, beginning in the South China Sea, actually, 24, uh, you know, 20 years before the South China Sea and China's sort of rise had taken up, we began it there. That was a success. So I did three of those, and I did three uh, more commercial character-driven thrillers, um, including the, 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 the one you mentioned there, Security Breach, that, that Lee Child kindly endorsed for me. Um, and, then, um, and then, as I said, you know, Iraq, Iraq was sort of just happening in Afghanistan and all this stuff was happening and I couldn't do both of them. Uh, and then I came back to do the, uh, to, to do the series that, that, that I just started now. So you've been, you've been writing for a while. You just took a little break in between. I took a break in between uh, from it, always thinking, I don't know whether you get this feeling, Lisa, you get this, this, uh, thinking, oh, well, you know, I should be doing this. 
other thing. I should be writing thrillers when I'm reporting this story, and then I report the writing the thrillers, and I think I should be reporting this story instead of writing thrillers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, writers almost always live in a constant state of guilt. We either feel guilty because we're writing or we feel guilty because we're not. So I think that's very, you get that too, do you? Yes, definitely. Always. Yeah. It's, it's a bizarre thing, but all the writers that I talk to every week, that's very common. We, we feel guilty when we write and we feel guilty when we don't. So Oh, well, that's good. That's made me feel better then. So I have to live with this sort of albatross weight of guilt around my neck. <laughs> right, right. But I should right. be doing something else comes... regardless of what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> I think it comes, yeah, part of having that writer brain, we also carry around that guilt. <laughs> <laughs> well, guilt is the great motivator, of course, isn't it? So guilt brings on revenge True. and anger and all those things that, are, that drive our characters. That's right, and we can dig into it and put it on the page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have to tell you, because when you're talking about the teeny tiny town on the edge of the Arctic, for some reason my whole life I've been, like, obsessed with Greenland, which is funny because I'm from San Diego where it's very warm, so I'm a weather wimp, but someday I'm going to put my feet on Greenland. But, but because of that, I read a lot of books far out of my genre that have to do with the Arctic. So I'm totally going to read yours. But did you ever catch the book called um, In the Kingdom of Ice? And it's about the USS Jeanette trying to get to the North Pole. And back then they thought that, that the North Pole would be tropical. Um, so anyway, I just throw that out there because if you're into <laughs> well, the icy, it is a wild story. <laughs> well, they headed story. up that and thinking the other, they'd get They'd get there by boat. Okay, and they wouldn't come across any ice. Well, they thought that you would push through. They put like a metal front on the boat because they were going to push through the ice. But they thought that the um, uh, there are the flows of water that's warm along the Pacific, and they thought that that was coming from the North Pole. So there are ancient maps in this book. It is wild, (laughs) wild story. But apparently they think where the USS Jeanette is right now, because the end of the book is fascinating, but it's about Russia and the United States because it's a United States naval vessel that's at the bottom of the ocean, and they know where it is, but Russia claims that's their part of the ocean. So nobody can pull it up. And it has scientific yes. records on it of species that are extinct now, so everybody really wants it. But that Russia can't pull it up because it's a U.S. ship, and the U.S. can't pull it up because it's Russia's ocean. It, it's a fascinating read, but but it oh all takes God. place up where you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And is it is it technically under the ice at the moment, or is it? Or does the ice melt over um, it in the summer? I believe the ice has melted, so they can they they okay. know right where it is, okay. but no one can get it. Uh, and so okay. it's a fascinating story. Um, you should definitely read it if you're into that area. I will. I'm going to Google that and have a look at it as soon as we're done. Yeah, yeah, it's called In the Kingdom of Ice, and it's fascinating. Yeah. And the guy who wrote it did go up there like you through all these tiny towns and, and you yeah. know, um, native speakers and, then, and people that it's just wild story. 
there, there was another story. I think a book's been done on it because at the far north of Greenland, they have a base called Tula, which is a U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, air base, military base with radar stations and everything. And sometime during the 80s, I think, a plane carrying a nuclear warhead crashed around there. And it was kept classified for a long time. And they've only just sort of got around to finding it or bringing it up or, or whatever they're doing with it. And the native people, of course, are saying, well, what do you mean? You, we had a crash nuclear bomber <laughs> right, <laughs> right where we are. Right here? Greenland is a fascinating place. It's, um, uh, and, and it's a good place for um, geopolitics at the moment because you remember Trump saying a few months back that he wanted to buy Greenland. To buy it, right. <laughs> yeah, he said he wanted to buy it and everybody laughed at him, a bit like they laughed at Sarah Palin. But actually he's absolutely right because Greenland – um, you know, it's this huge mass of ice, essentially, with about, uh, you know, I think it's about 100,000 people live there. And they're all tiny settlements that you can get to only by plane. Um, so you fly into the airport and before you can go anywhere else, you have to get on a plane somewhere else. Um, but right. uh, but Gr- Greenland wants to have its independence from Denmark. Denmark actually owns it at the moment. It's got a self-government. Right. And the Chinese have been coming in there with dollop loads of money, buying up land, giving jobs, promising all sorts of things. And Trump basically just said, well, look, you know, we can't have the Chinese owning Greenland. We will buy it instead. And that's what that whole thing was about. A little bit like uh, the, the U.S. bought uh, Alaska at the end of the 19th century, the Alaska Purchase, um, right. for pretty much the same reason, to protect America against Russia and against Britain and Canada at the time. But, you know, so Trump was sort of looking and saying, okay, of course he did it like a real estate guy instead of a president, but there you go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When the, um, the secret life of Walter Mitty came out, I had to quickly go see it because they filmed a bunch of it in Greenland. And that was, it was fascinating (laughs) to see, you know, just the tiny, tiny town. I don't know. So I have no idea. The um, When I was in elementary school, probably fourth or fifth grade, when they bring out the first atlas, you know, and start showing you all the continents, yeah. I saw the big mm-hmm. landmass of Greenland. And so I was instantly, you know, what's that? And my teacher looks at us point blank and says, there's no one in Greenland. And instantly I was like, well, I'm going to go to Greenland. <laughs> I don't know why, but my whole life I've been obsessed with someday I'm putting my feet on Greenland. And I, when I first joined Twitter, I had tweeted something about Greenland, and it took like eight years, but someone from Greenland found my tweet and answered me. I was like, oh, my gosh, someone oh from Greenland God. talked to me. But they're on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Who knew? Greenland is um... – <laughs> I've done a few stories up there, and uh, and it is a, it's that you know they have a uh, they have a dog sled thing every year uh, that goes from from um, Nuuk, which is the capital, going up to, goes up to right. this base in Tula, 
because when the Americans moved in, of course, they moved a lot of the, the, the native Greenlanders out. And it's always been an issue that they should get their land back. So they have, so they wrap you up in sort of seal skins and everything, and you go for three or four days across the ice, and you end up at the gate of the Tula Air Base, and then the leader of the, the, the group bangs on the gate, and they hand this petition over to the, the camp commander, and it says that they want their land back and, and, and everything like that. The camp commander accepts it. Then he opens them, opens up the, the things, and they all go in, and they have a merry old drunken party for the rest of the evening. <laughs> and, then they, and then they fly back. <laughs> and they do it every year. <laughs> uh, every well, I I heard I haven't che- I heard that this past year they had trouble doing it because of the uh, the ice or the, or the, the you, cause they go across these lakes oh. and, and that it had all become slush because of global warming. So you had these wow. huskers that you you know run beautifully across the snow and the ice and that were actually getting weighed down uh, into their bellies uh, because they were sinking into the slush. So wow. maybe it didn't happen or finish it, but that's very sort of, um, yeah. you know, Yeah, so global telling, warming telling, might be real. Let's put it that way. But they have the, you know, in Greenland, they have the, um, the Greenland ice cap. And what they do is they drill way down into the ice and then they pull up these columns of the ice and in the columns, you know when you see a tree and each ring represents a year or something of its life, in the columns right. of the ice, they have a similar sort of thing. And I went into the lab and we were filming there. And the scientist said, well, look, if you look at this particular one, this is when Mount Krakatoa exploded. And this is when Vesuvius went off. This is going way, way back. And wow. there, were, there were slightly darkened rings. And I said, what is this? He said, well, this is the pollution or the carbon in the atmosphere or whatever. And I said, oh, my God. So a volcano goes off, and that's sort of like what in in sort of global warming carbon (laughs) terms? I can't remember exactly what he said. If a volcano erupts, then you've got X number of days or years of carbon emission that we're trying to stop at the moment. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, we are rapidly running out of time, but I could talk to you all day about Greenland. Um, (laughs) But where can everyone go? We went off on a tangent, didn't we? (laughs) We did, we did, talking about all that frozen wasteland. (laughs) But where can people get Man on Edge? How How can readers connect with you? Uh, if they if they put into my website, which is Humphrey Hawksley, that's H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y, and then H-A-W-K-S for sugar, L for London, E-Y, dot com. But Man on Edge has its own website, so which is within mine. So that's manonedge.co.uk or manonice.co.uk. So there's the buy buttons from Amazon and all that sort of stuff on the website there, or you go straight to Amazon. But what I do say, uh, Lisa, is that if you're in a community and you've got a local bookstore, go in and see if they've got it or order it, because we really want to try to keep the independent bookstores alive. And, um, and, and, you know, they're struggling. So if, you know, you don't have to buy it now, wait a day, uh, they'll get it in. Um, You might have to pay a dollar more 
<laughs> because you, but it, right. keeps, it keeps the community <laughs> reading alive, doesn't it? So, so, so yes. even from the from the you know the local bookstore, San Diego. I did something down in San Diego last year. Um, yeah, mysterious for galaxy, another book right? I was doing, yes. Uh, no, no. It was um, it, there's a there's a little town on the water just outside of um, Warwick's. Oh, La Jolla. So it was Warwick. Yeah, yeah. Warwick's yeah, we, and we Mysterious a, Galaxy are yeah, are good. Yeah, we 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 did that down there to, for for a nonfiction book called Asian Waters that I was doing. So that was so I have a bit of a an affinity. So if you live near Warwick's, go and order it from Warwick's or any bookstore, Mysterious or anything like that. Um, <laughs> uh, or on Amazon. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> on with the Thank werewolves. Thank you so much for being on. Yes, more werewolves and more ice. <laughs> Geopolitical Thanks ice for and being on. we're going to do. Cheers, there Lisa. There we go. Bye. That'll be our next one. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.